First up, though, we are going to check in with Tom Stamatakis. He is the president of the Canadian Police Association. Tom is on the line with us. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Uh, We wanted to talk to you a bit more uh, for your reaction on some of the comments that were made by Vancouver's Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Uh, We talked with him yesterday about that growing camp in Strathcona Park, the concerns uh, of some of the residents. Uh, Here's just one of the comments he made to us. In talking with uh, Police Chief Adam Palmer, we've, uh, you know, there's been some adjustments in terms of policing in the area, and so people will notice um, more police, uh, you know, patrolling their neighborhoods. but uh, in the end, the only thing that homes and homelessness is homes. And so, um, Tom Samatakis, how do you respond to that? Well, I respond in two ways. One is uh, this this notion that there's an adjustment in terms of uh, police response or engagement. All, all that's happening is it's a reallocation of resources that are already stretched too thin. So it just means if we're reallocating police resources to one neighborhood. That means another neighborhood doesn't have those resources. So in the context of the broader issue we have in the city of Vancouver with respect to disorder, uh, that also just moves around. So you're not really solving the problem or getting ahead of the problem in that context. And the second piece is, I mean, this is such a frustrating issue because housing is absolutely critical, but housing without concrete wraparound services to accompany it doesn't solve your problem and and calling Oppenheimer as a success is evidence of why that's the case if if you have a person who's suffering from a serious mental health issue and that person falls into crises if there's not somebody there to ensure that the person's getting the treatment they need the counseling they need uh, prescribing to a, a regime of taking appropriate medications it doesn't matter whether that person has has housing or not, they're still going to fall into crises, which is going to have an impact on that person, on the people surrounding that person, and on resources in the community. And when we talk about the issue of enforcement, and I don't think anyone is suggesting that they want police to go down to that tent camp to bust it up, to, to remove it completely, but perhaps treating people who are in that camp, there, there are the people who, who have mental health illness, there are people who are homeless, there are others who are preying on people in that camp, there are others who are threatening people in that neighbourhood. Uh, when the mayor says that enforcement doesn't work and that the enforcement arm isn't what is going Going to get about get us out of this how do you kind of reconcile that with residents who are coming home to find people shooting up in their driveway and threatening them when they're asked to leave and who are, who are constantly threatening physical violence and trying to break into their homes well enforcement on its own is not the answer but enforcement is part of what should be an appropriate response to serious issues and serious concerns that have been identified by residents and Enforcement is also a component of trying to deal with the people who are actually further victimizing already vulnerable and marginalized people. So to say that, you know, there's no role for enforcement, I think is, is it, it's not fair to, to the people who are being affected by some of the disorder that's happening in the community. But the police, I think, can play an important role, though, in terms of facilitating access to appropriate supports or treatments or getting people not uh, intervening in incidents, not to, to arrest people or to take them to jail, but intervening in incidents where maybe we can get people to, for example, supportive housing or appropriate resources so that 
their mental health issue can be better managed or their addiction issue can be better responded to. So, so I think it's about a collaborative approach to a very serious issue, but an, an issue that's becoming more and more serious and acute in this, in this city. And there needs to be a, um, a more complete response and not one that just focuses on one solution only. Is there not a role also, though, for arresting people and taking them to jail if they're caught breaking the law? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, um, we have a criminal code in this country. We have provincial statutes. We have municipal bylaws. And and for whatever reason, um, there's been an approach taken in, in Vancouver in particular, and we see it in other cities across the country, not to the same extent, I might add, uh, where um, if the police do take enforcement actions because citizens are demanding that they do that, then they're widely criticized and, and we're sort of caught in this in the in the middle of this, you know, very difficult uh, and challenging issue where I think most people agree we need to support and help people who are uh, suffering from mental health issues, suffering from addiction issues. Um, but there needs to be a balance between, uh, you know, those challenges and, and the broader notion of community safety. Do you think that when you talk about what's happening in other cities as well, people will say we don't see the same level of allowance when it comes to this kind of activity of of the tent camps, of 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 what's bike chop shops, of crimes that's that that are happening and and being allowed to stay there for a couple of years, as we saw in Oppenheimer. Why do you think it is is that that there's this kind of feeling of you can get away with it in Vancouver when it's not happening in other cities, other cities where the population is even bigger than Vancouver? Well, I mean, that's a, it's a complicated issue. And I think in Canada, Canada is a very large country. We have, you know, regional differences um, between uh, regions and provinces and communities. And certainly, uh, you know, on the West Coast, we have a more liberal approach. I think the other stark difference is, you know, Vancouver geographically is a, is a smaller area. We've concentrated um, a lot of services and people in in a small part of our city, and and so it's more in your face. Whereas in other communities that that are much larger geographically, much larger by way of population, you know the the, the issues don't seem to be as concentrated, so they're not as obvious. Uh, but but it, you know they're very complicated issues. They're underlined by our response to this whole opioid issue that's been very well covered. I mean they're they're there are things that I think need to be done. There's been lots of discussion about safe supply, which I think is a key um, piece to, to to try and get to some of these um, serious addiction issues that are so embedded in our communities. And, and I think that's where the focus should be, along with building capacity around the services that people who are struggling need, as opposed to just focusing on this notion that housing on its own is going to solve the problem. And I, And unfortunately... You know that's been the focus, and I'm not seeing a lot of good announcements or good capacity being built around. You know, everybody refers to these wraparound services, but I can tell you from a policing perspective, you know, where are they? Because you know, our our, our police officers are interacting with individuals and communities every day, but when it comes time to 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 get somebody to a place where they can access those services or where supporting housing supportive housing is being provided. Uh, when you go to those locations, where is the, where are the wraparound services that are providing that support to individuals that need it, providing opportunities to them so that they can get away from uh, behavior that's harmful, not only for them, but also for the broader community? 
All right. We'll leave it there. Tom Stamatakis, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Well, we've been talking about uh, the Strathcona tent city, the tent city in Strathcona Park, the concerns of residents nearby, and not only that part of Vancouver, but also what many are saying appears to be an increase in open drug use, in crime in their neighbourhoods, in garbage, including littered needles in their neighbourhood. And we were talking about this because yesterday on the program, Vancouver's Mayor Kennedy Stewart joined us uh, to talk about housing. He says that housing is the only way to deal with homelessness. But uh, as many of you have been pointing out and calling in, there is a whole lot more to it. How do you deal with addiction, with mental illness, with people who are the most vulnerable, who are being taken advantage of in some of these situations? And he also talked about how enforcement is not the way to get out of this issue or to deal with this issue. Well, then today I saw a post by the chief police officer in Abbotsford. Mike Sear tweeting out, great work by our Abbotsford Police Drug Enforcement Unit. Despite COVID, they persevered to keep Abbotsford Ford safe. Seizures show that the drug toxicity levels are high. Do not use alone. So a lot happening there. And Mike Sear has has agreed to join us on the show. He is on the line with us now. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Um, How big of a problem is it? Or is it as far as tent cities, homelessness, crime and drug use in Abbotsford? Yeah, we're like every other community. I mean, we certainly have, uh, you know, I think we're six right now in overdose deaths uh, provincially for cities. So, you know, it is something that we've worked very hard on to try to support people who are using drugs and uh, find them pathways of care. But, you know, at the same time, we are also going to aggressively go after those people who are selling the drugs, who are producing the drugs, importing the drugs and, uh, and try to make an impact there. And when officers, I know a lot in that in that post talking about COVID, which is another level that officers are dealing with. Do officers actively enforce, though, if they see open drug dealing or open drug use on the streets? Yeah, so as far as drug dealing, yes. As far as open drug use, you know, we direct people to care. So, you know, in Abbotsford, we have what's called Project Angel that we can direct uh, a person who's using to peers uh, 24-7, which is really important. I mean, you know, we, we know the impact on our community with open drug use and, and discarded needles, and we want to work with our community, uh, with those people that are using to, to find better uh, avenues. But you know, we are still, like I said, you know, very focused on, on going after the people that are selling it. Um, and that won't change for us, despite us making calls for decriminalization of simple possession. And I know not to go into the details of this particular seizure, but the picture that w- that was sent out as well was a, a, a person being taken away by members of the drug enforcement team. Uh, do, do, do you think that makes a difference? Because we also hear about this revolving door. People might go through the system and be back out selling these toxic drugs again. Does it does do you see positive uh, outcomes when people are arrested for this? Yeah, and I agree with your earlier comment in the comment of the Mayor of Vancouver. You know, it, it's not a one approach is going to fix all. And, you know, I think the Prime Minister commented on that. It's, you know, decrim is not a, the silver bullet. It, but you, at the end of the day, you know, we will still focus on, um, you know, the people that are selling illegally. We know a lot of that is organized crime who is making enormous amounts of money, and it's important that we disrupt that. But at the same token, we have to uh, definitely address the demand. And, uh, you know, I've been a cop for 31 years, and, you know, we've never never made a seizure that has significantly impacted the illicit drug trade on our street. Um, you know, drugs of illegal drugs are always going to be available, um, but nonetheless, we have to go after the organized crime groups that are, are targeting uh, marginalized people and, and those addicted. 
But we have to put much more effort, uh, Jill, into you know addressing people who are, are managing uh, drug addiction and, and drug use and, and, and finding them the supports, which could include you know um, opioid-assisted treatment and, and uh, a range of, of uh, programs to support them and help them. Yeah, and I think that's a really important distinction in that there's a big difference between arresting the dealer, arresting the person who who is dealing this toxic drug and doesn't care what happens to the person who takes it and and giving the person who is taking it, dealing with addiction, that chance for help, for for medical help, for uh, what we refer to, I think, often as wraparound services. A hundred percent. And we've learned that over and over again, that there's not one single approach that's going to work for everyone. We can put more beds in, but it's not just beds. It's it's a a suite of, of services. Um, but, you know, we are very committed to, like you said, to, you know, there's poison on our street. It's incredibly toxic, the drugs that we're seeing right now, and people are dying. And if, if we allow that to go unchecked, to, you know, so I think every police department is still very, very committed, and we are committed to, you know, to disrupting um, the illicit trade on our streets. Uh, the Prime Minister is doing a series of virtual uh, or interviews. He's not in BC, but he's talking to BC media outlets today. Uh, he's talking a lot about the fact that he's not still on board with decriminalization, but uh, is pushing this idea of safe supply. Would safe supply, do you think, make a, a difference with what officers are dealing with, again, with people not taking the toxic, the killer drugs? Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, we know what is killing people uh, is the illegal drugs and the high toxicity, but it has to be done in the right way with a health approach with the experts in health who can support a person, monitor a person. And it's not just giving drugs and walking away. It is, you know, continuing to guide them through this journey. And hopefully, you know, I always say a drug dealer on the street is trying to make a person use more drugs uh, and they're, they're increasing toxicity and to get people to take more. Hopefully, uh, you know, through a supported system in the medical uh, care approach is we can get people to be stabilized and eventually maybe take less drugs and in a perfect world, uh, maybe not even require them. So fully support, you know, evidence-based medical approaches that will help people. Uh, and when we talk about decriminalization, I know in Vancouver, at least, it's almost like de facto decriminalization. Police haven't been arresting people for simple possession for quite some time. Uh, would that make a difference? Because I, I feel sometimes, too, that people use the words decriminalization and legalization interchanging those words when it's not the same, whereas decriminalizing it still means that the toxic drugs are out there. Uh, people will still be overdosing and still dying, whereas legalization would be something completely different. Yeah, and we do not support legalization, and legalization is what we have with marijuana. So, you know, to, de- to legalize, you know, hard drugs would be being able to go and buy from your government store, you know, a stimulant or an opioid or things like that. And that's, we don't believe that's the approach, but we certainly believe that, you know, not criminalizing it, um, but simply just saying we're not going to decriminalize drugs and we're not going to arrest people, it, it's a start. It, it uh, destigmatizes drug use. But it's, we need a wraparound health approach. We need a model or a system like we've seen in Portugal. I'm talking to officers in New Zealand with some of their approaches that guide people in the pathways of care is, is critical. And, you know, the Public Prosecution Service just last week or two weeks ago announced that there, unless there's extenuating circumstances, will not charge people with simple possession. Um, you know, we support that that's the end goal, but it might be putting a little bit the cart before the horse in the sense that, you know, we need to have a system and programs in place where we can help guide people. And uh, I think there needs a lot more needs to be done uh, before, you know, we get to where we need to be to help people. How do you as a police department deal with that criminal element? And like we see in tent cities that pop up in Vancouver, where it's they're, they're not there because they're homeless. They're there to prey on vulnerable people. 
Yeah, and, you know, and we're, we're very mindful of not targeting, you know, marginalized people who are essentially doing those survival crimes or selling drugs to, you know, to survive for themselves and their addictions. But we're, we're trying to target the, the people who we know are very connected to organized crime, who are there all about the money and uh, and the power and, and trying to uh, disrupt. And, and it's a challenge, uh, you know, especially like you said, in those 10 cities, uh, Kudos to Victoria PD, who who did a good uh, a good project. I believe it was last week that they announced. So, you know, we're very mindful. We have good intelligence and uh, very um, passionate police officers who will find ways to to find the people that we need to target. All right, we'll leave it there, uh, Chief Sear. Thanks so much for joining us and for agreeing to come on the program today. Appreciate it. Thanks, y'all. Take care. Thanks for being with us on this Wednesday afternoon. We're going to shift a little bit away from talking about addiction, homelessness, housing, and how it uh, impacts the region. We will continue uh, taking your calls on the buzz line and your email as well. But we want to talk about something else that has happened. And it's some new information that was just released by the World Wildlife Federation, the new Living Planet Report Canada, taking a look at our ecological health and solutions when it comes to protecting and making sure we have wildlife in the many years to come. Joining me on the line to talk more about this is Megan Leslie, the CEO of WWF Canada. Thanks so much for being with us. Hey, Jill. I'm really glad to be here. Oh, I think it's something that uh, we, we think about but don't think mm. about. We, we think that wildlife is there and we're all kind of coexisting and can going moving on. But this report uh, highlights some of the concerns, some of the issues. So let's go through some of them. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head where you said maybe this isn't something we think about because Canada is so big. So, you know, how could we have issues with wildlife? We've got all this landscape and seascape and we've got the longest coastline in the world. So surely wildlife's doing okay here. But in fact, uh, we found that that's not the case, that wildlife, not all wildlife are thriving in Canada. So we have this report, the Living Planet Report Canada, and we've looked at wildlife population trends since 1970 to figure out how are wildlife doing in Canada. And really importantly, species that we've, we've said, hey, these are at-risk species. These are species that we need to work on and pay attention to. They're on the decline by 59%. So these are species that we said there's a risk here for, for their extinction. And, and we put efforts into the recovery and they're still on the decline. So what that means is Canada is fueling the global extinction crisis. And, and we got to start working on some solutions. Are there specific species or animals that are at the top of that list? Yeah, well, especially for BC residents. I mean, in BC, there's so many uh, different ecosystems at play. Uh, Vancouver Island marmot is critically endangered, and this this animal only exists on Vancouver Island. So if it goes in Canada, like we have the sole responsibility for making sure it's okay. Uh, the collar pika. Uh, some people know the cartoon Pikachu. This is uh, the animal that it's actually based on. Um, so th- those, and everybody knows about the southern residents. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot of wildlife at risk, but I do also want to emphasize that our report shows that we can turn things around, that different measures can be put in place to bring wildlife back. I mean, uh, something like a policy change to say, hey, we're going to put a ban on hunting humpback whales. And, and now they, the numbers are coming back. Trumpeter swans, we said, hey, we're going we're gonna to protect their migratory routes. And, and now trumpeter swans are, are at least concerned. They're not at risk. So we can do it. 
so when you talk about something like the marmot, the, mm-hmm. the Vancouver Island marmot, so what is causing it then? It's, it's not a hunted species. What is causing yeah. the decline? Well, it's hunted by something. It's hunted by other animals. And so the issue with the marmot and with so many animals is, do they have the habitat that they need to thrive? So with the marmot, they're getting squeezed out by humans, but that also puts them more at risk of their, of their predators. There's lots of factors. And, and one thing that our report shows is, for animals that are at risk, they usually face, on average, about five different threats. So that could be habitat loss, it could be pollution, it could be climate change, invasive species and disease. That's good information for us working in conservation, well, for all of us, because we we know that tackling one threat at a time isn't working. We have to figure out a new way forward where we can tackle multiple threats at once. That's the key. Uh, is there a scenario, and again, I mean, people love wildlife, it's beautiful, mm-hmm. it's part of our lives. Is there a scenario, though, where this happens and this is nature running its course? Oh, gosh, I hope not. <laughs> One thing that, uh, not just because we love wildlife and, and we like to, you know, go and see the collar pike or whatever it is. I mean, the whole thing is a web of life. Sometimes we don't even know uh, how an animal or how a species fits into that web. And we're really getting it out of whack and out of balance. And and you think about, we, if we lost certain a certain species and throw that web out of whack if we layer on climate change we layer on habitat loss it has the potential to affect everything including having reliable weather so that we can have agriculture and we can depend on four seasons i mean it's hard to think that losing one insect could lead to that but that insect could be food for a larger animal that is responsible for fertilizing that is responsible for it like it's this huge web Right. So we've got to protect all of it. And do we focus then too much on the bigger animals when, mm-hmm. say you're talking about frogs, uh, as yeah. opposed to the, the importance of frogs, as opposed to we talk so much about the caribou and the wolf kill, right. and if that's too much of, of humans meddling? Well, I think that's been the way we've done it in the past. And now I think if we're talking about those big charismatic species that we love, I hope that it's just a hook. It's a hook to get people to pay attention. What about the caribou? What about the trumpeter, beautiful trumpeter swan? But those of us working in conservation, we really are looking at the whole ecosystem. We really are looking at the habitat. And, you know, I do want to actually end a little bit on, on a positive note. We know what the solution is. When I'm talking about tackling more than one threat at a time, nature is a solution. It's habitat. So is that habitat viable? Can it support everything from the caribou to the smallest of lichen in the Arctic? Uh, And at the same time, habitat stores carbon. It's rich in carbon that is locked into that landscape through the trees, through the soil, and it can help us fight climate change, if you can believe it. So it's it's this huge win-win. Nature is really the solution here. So if humans could do one thing or Canadians could do one thing, what would you suggest they do? One thing, I'm going to say put the lens of habitat on everything you do. Think about who lives here other than us. So if it's a tiny little yard or a balcony, can you plant a native flower that could feed a pollinator that could feed an insect? If you live in a a small town, if you live in a big city, can I talk to my municipality to make sure that, that there is habitat in this city? How can we support that wildlife with the habitat that they need? doesn't mean putting a fence around it.
right? We can right. go there and we can live in it and we can enjoy it too. It helps us as, as, as humans. But think about the fact that all this space used to be habitat. How do we make sure that it's habitat that can support wildlife and then also fight climate change at the same time by, by drawing in that, those greenhouse gases? How does Canada fare, do you think, on an international stage then? Oh, okay. Great question. Um, so our report, we actually looked at, um, so there are these species that are of global concern. So you think about something like the right whale. It's in Canada some of the time. It's it's in, in the south some of the time or the leatherback turtle or species that are fi- found here in Canada and other countries. There's this red list, uh, this global red list. And we're, we showed, uh, our research shows that the animals that are in Canada that are on this global red list, they are also on the decline. So what it, I mean, what it means is Canada is contributing to this global uh, potentially extinction crisis. Uh, So, you know, I go back to this, how you started the interview where you said, we don't often think about this because we have all this space, all this landscape and seascape, but it's, it's a real issue for Canadian species, but also species that are at risk globally. All right, Megan, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us, though. Appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for being with us on this Wednesday afternoon. Well, Matthew Fisher, who has been on this program many times before, he's an international affairs columnist, uh, also foreign correspondent. He has written about Canada's Pacific role, the Pacific role during the Second World War. And he joins me on the line once again to talk more about this. Matthew, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Well, thank you for having me on again, Jill. Well, it's such an interesting piece, and people can uh, read it at globalnews.ca, talking about Canada's involvement and the parts of that 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 people maybe uh, didn't learn about to begin with or kind of were glossed over. What do you think are are the most significant parts of Canada's involvement that we just don't hear about? Well, one of them was that Canada signed the uh, document of surrender, uh, with the other allied countries uh, uh, and the Japanese leadership uh, this very day, September the 2nd, 75 years ago. And uh, that is a symbol that we were part of the Pacific War. I understand why Canadians mostly or overwhelmingly think of what we did in Europe, uh, Italy and Northwestern uh, Europe, during the uh, Second uh, World War because we had such an outsized contribution uh, for uh, for our country in terms of our economy and the number of people we had. But we were in the Pacific War from the very first day. Uh, Canadians almost alone provided the heroic and futile defense of Hong Kong in December of 1941. Nearly 300 Canadians died in that battle, and then as many more died in Japanese prisoner of war camps. Uh, Canadians fought in the Aleutians. Canadians fought in western Alaska. Uh, uh, Canada, the Royal Canadian Air Force, actually had a base in Sri Lanka, then known as Ceylon, During the Second World War, two Canadians were awarded the Victoria Cross for their uh, extreme bravery uh, in the Pacific, and individual Canadian augmentees were uh, serving with the RAF uh, Royal Air Force across every uh, major part of the Pacific War, something Canadians don't know. And I, I just thought it was an opportunity to inform Canadians that we did more than just fight in Europe. 
Uh, there's a line in the piece that you've written as well that says, I heard about Canada's intended role in Operation Downfall from my father. Uh, do you remember that conversation? I sure do. My father passed away 10 years ago at the age of 90. Uh, but uh, Operation Downfall was going to be the invasion of Japan. And Canada was mustering a division, 25,000 men in British Columbia to fight uh, in Japan. My father had fought in Europe had volunteered to fight in Asia and was on a ship coming home from Europe. Uh, and uh, they were between Matan and Ramuski entering the Gulf of St. Lawrence when they heard that the atomic bombs had been dropped on first Hiroshima and later Nagasaki. And that ended all of those plans because Japan agreed to surrender. Otherwise, my father and all those other Canadians and a million other Allied troops would have participated in what would have been an extremely bloody invasion of Japan if we go by what the Japanese did in defending places such as Iwo Jima, Guadalcanal, and Okinawa. My father always, uh, he, he never glorified war or the fact that so many Japanese died in that attack, Joe, uh, the atomic bombs. But he did say that Truman's decision to drop those bombs, President Truman, uh, that it was a lifesaver for him and the other men. They were predicting just hellacious casualties for the invasion of Japan. And he said that on the ship, the mood was electric, that the war finally was ending, the final page, if you like, of the final chapter of World War Two. And we talk often, whether it's at Remembrance Day or other ceremonies, we talk about how because of, of time we're losing our veterans and there are so few left with that firsthand knowledge and those memories. You mentioned this in the piece as well, that, that, that there are just a few elderly Canadian survivors of these battles and that have these stories to tell. Do you think it's important that we, that we make sure we preserve that and make sure that we get those stories out and that people know about it? I absolutely do. There's been uh, an attempt, uh, I think, in the education of young Canadians for 20 or 25 years now to highlight peacekeeping. And uh, I'm not against any highlighting of peacekeeping. That is a very noble thing to do. But Canadians should also know uh, that uh, they come from a warrior nation, a nation that uh, fought and distinguished itself in the Boer War, the First War, uh, the Second War, the Korean War, and also in Afghanistan. We have done our part. In the, the context for today, we finish the war in Japan 75 years ago, but now there are so many problems with China today, and God forbid that that leads to war, but tensions are rising all the time. Canada is obviously allied with Western countries, with Japan, South Korea, India, uh, Australia, and the United States, and uh, it is conceivable that Canadian men and women will fight again in the Pacific uh, because of what China is up to in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, and uh, in the Himalaya Mountains with India and so many other places. Canadians should be much more attentive to this, and I think their history would inform them that this is not impossible, that Canadians could be in a shooting war in the Pacific. All right, Matthew, we'll leave it there. It is a very interesting read. Thank you so much for joining us and to talk more about it. Uh, thank you very much.